0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Jeremy Black. Jeremy Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is the without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written close to 200 books. And today we are discussing one of his newest books, A Short History of War, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Uh, Professor, why did you write this book?
2: I wrote this book because I wanted to write a short, compact, global history of war. I was... Um, shall we say disappointed that the histories of war that are out there are still very eurocentric and i wanted to try and do better years ago with yale i had written what i had hoped um would be a sort of heavyweight work war in the world military power and the fate of continents which came out in 98 and that's a much longer and footnoted book um, and I think that worked at that level, but there was no good short history of war, and that's what I wanted to try and uh, try and offer.
1: Well, what were the origins of war as a social activity?
2: Well, I personally think that war is inherent to the human condition, so in other words, I don't see it as coming about as a result of some sort of supposed fall of mankind, whether considered in terms of a um, nature of social organization or whatever. uh, I actually see it as a product of group activity, of groups um, initially for human beings um, protecting themselves and seeking to benefit from other animals, and then uh, also interacting with other human groups. So I see it as pretty well integral
1: so for you war as a social activity predates urbanization
2: yes and I've, i as you say i the first chapter is on the origins of conflict and i try to go in in some detail into uh, the nature of um human conflict developing very early on, Um, I also am very dubious about the oft-repeated argument that early warfare was ritualistic and therefore supposedly limited. Um, I think that's misleading, and I I would also add the point that ritual does not mean that conflict was not uh, deliberate, deadly, nor harsh.
1: Why did war in a state-structured fashion originate in the Near and Middle East?
2: Well, I think that's because, and in China, I think that's because uh, those are the areas of early um, uh, early statehood. I think you've got larger consolidations of human beings in the societies made possible by irrigation uh, along major rivers, the Nile, the Tig the Yellow, and the Yangtze being the absolute crucial ones, though there were others, I mean, in India, obviously, uh, the Indus and the Ganges. Um, and I discussed that in in the second chapter on war in the early states, but I also bring in, and I think this is important, um, the role of um, war as a narrative of group organization, both its central role in religious narratives and the sense that tribal success or over other tribes involves conflict between gods or cosmic struggles in what is an inherently competitive system. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the argument that uh, religion is a social construct of, as it were, some form of modern society, uh, urbanized society, um, I think that plays uh, very little attention to the extent to which most religions are inherently bellicose.
1: How, if at all, did the origins and early history of war different China from that in the Near and Middle East?
2: Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, in China, you have a... Oscillation would be the wrong word because that would suggest some inherent natural process, but you have contrasting stages of a multipolar system, which is similar to that in um, the Near and Middle East, and periods of consolidation where you have a single... Potent empire and the latter is a contrasting situation to the Middle East but obviously there are periods like say the Warring States period which is commonly dated between 403 and 221 uh, BC when you've got a situation which is not too different to what you would see uh, further west and I think it's also worth pointing out that much of the um, organization of warfare so the use of mass disciplined infantry formations or its technology use of archery uh, the use of chariots um, the uh, nature of fortification and therefore uh, siegecraft are ones that are not unique to China but uh, are, are shared elsewhere both in South Asia and in South West Asia and North Africa
1: To what do you attribute, militarily speaking, uh, the uh, world empires of Persia and Rome, as well as the post-Alexandrian kingdoms, um, do they have anything in common?
2: Well, I think um, that's a really interesting question, Charles, because I think it's one. Often, if one is seeking for commonalities in a certain period, we'll look at either the socio-economic constraints or the technological constraints. But in practical terms, in pre-industrial society, and much of the world doesn't industrialize till the period beginning in the mid-19th century, the socio-economic structures and the technological constraints are fairly similar. I mean, in terms of if you think of warfare... the uh, until you've got the steam engine and lo- the locomotive steam engine on both, um, as it were, land and sea, um, you've got a situation where people can't move any faster than um, what they might by their own feet or by the um, accumulated organic energy of animals they may be riding on the backs of, or um, you know, or, or ships which are either road or, or benefiting from. Sale, sale, and that situation doesn't change. And in socio-economic terms, I think you know you've fundamentally got low efficiency, primarily agrarian economies in which the actual uh, agricultural surplus um, will only support a certain level of um, sort of political spe- uh, organization, social specialization, military deployment. So I'm not happy with the idea that necessarily there's a commonality in a period of time that explains similarities. What I would say is that in many of these imperial structures and here I wouldn't be necessarily drawing any contrast with say the age of Napoleon you have if you you had a um, individual of, of some skill who is able to uh, have an advantage, and that advantage produces uh, an imperial structure or sustains an imperial structure or expands an imperial structure, but that they are not in any way unique as a result of that. And indeed, their empires always end with falling.
1: Why do you say, quote, it is not helpful to refer to the Roman way of war, unquote?
2: Well, because I think there are a number of uh, military uh, practices that you would see with the Roman Empire, both chronologically, um, it's generally agreed that late Roman warfare, by which we mean late imperial warfare, um, it has a very different organizational method uh, to that of the early imperial Uh, period and secondly uh, there are significant geographical uh, variations Warfare where you might be talking about uh, frontiers of significant legionary um, numbers are going to be very different from warfare in other frontiers. And then on top of that, there are contrasts between the warfare which we might regard as civil warfare and the warfare that isn't. And then we can take that further and say you can look for contrasts between um, uh, warfare when you've got the empire expanding and warfare when the empire is not expanding. So I would actually emphasize, and I think that makes Roman warfare much more interesting than the idea that there is a, um, a single unitary pattern or a pattern which changes um, in, in a unidirectional fashion.
1: Ah, uh, so for you, do the Romans in uh in from your vantage point have a quote grand strategy unquote a la Edward Lutvach's thesis.
2: Ah, oh, well, there we go. <laughs>
1: That's
2: very Interesting. That's a slightly different question. And I my book, also a Yale book on history military strategy, addresses that. Um, I would again say you would not expect a system which, if you're looking just at the Western Empire, we're not talking about Byzantium, we're looking at a period which uh, generally and conventionally dated to about uh, a, millennia, a millennium plus 100, so 1,100 years. We would not expect there to be a particular grand strategy of that period. If what one is thinking about are um periods of assumptions about overextension or um uh, periods in which uh, expansion appeared to be more desirable and you wish to use that pattern to describe for example um the first 150 years uh, from you know uh, after uh, Augustus comes to, uh, to take control, and that I think is slightly different, um, but that doesn't mean that necessarily you're looking at a grand strategy that's inherent to the Roman Empire. You might be saying you've got a grand strategy which you wish to consider in terms of Hadrian's assumptions or Trajan's assumptions or Augustus's position after the Battle of the Thunberg Wald or whatever. So I would think there that I would be much more in favor of a strategic culture, but where the um, particularities uh, owe a lot to the response to circumstances, and that response is framed in terms of the assumptions of the rulers.
1: What explains, uh, in your view, the decline of Roman military effectiveness in the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D.?
2: Well, I think, first of all, that there was a um, pressure on the Romans from a number, a concatenation of opponents. I mean, I think, in fact, the most significant in the second and third centuries, I would say, was the Sassanid Empire. Um, and as as you may know, for example, the Emperor Valerian was defeated as Edessa in 260 and captured. You know, this is a fairly major um, event, Uh, but first, as with so many of the battles in antiquity, there are no reliable details of it, Um, and secondly, um, I think there is... It's fair to say, in much of the general military history written by non specialists, there is a tendency to emphasise the assaults on the Western Roman Empire rather than to consider the the extraordinary efforts the Romans made to um, uh, to fight uh, first well the Parthians and then the sasanians but then but more generally other opponents also on their eastern borders. Um, now, we can discuss this if we want to say that uh, decline, which is the m- m- term that's often used, carries with it an assumption that there is a, a- an obvious, um, as it were, level, which is an appropriate level of activity and expansion beyond which you have overexpanded, weakened yourself, and are therefore likely to... Uh, to be a, to be, to succumb to attack and that model has been used in a num- in discussing a number of empires say Spain in the 17th century for example i think it's a problematic notion because it presupposes that you've got a clear-cut understanding, uh, either in modern terms or in contemporary terms, of what was an obvious level of expansion and extension. You could take it in a more interesting fashion and say that decline may be the wrong word, but crisis is necessarily a coterminus of of any uh, major state um, operating in in a context of frequent conflict and with unpredictable uh, uh, externalities. And I would have thought the Roman Empire um, sort of exemplifies that. Um, That doesn't mean that it doesn't have um, invasion crises, for example, there's one in the 250s, from which it can uh, not, um, as it were, have a measure of of, uh, revival, which it does, for example, if you're thinking about the one We're thinking about, um, you know, in the 270s and 280s, first Aurelian and then Diocletian brought a measure of revival. Subsequently, uh, Septimus Severus is is generally seen um, as in that light as well. So I'm not sure that I would say that the 2nd and 3rd centuries are necessarily fatal crises. And of course, from the perspective of the Byzantium, uh, which is still there uh, up to the conquest by Mehmed II in 1453, I think that might seem even more the case.
1: What were, insofar as the sources tell us anything, was the military basis of the Arab conquests in the the 7th century?
2: Well, that's, again, a, a, an excellent question, and I'm glad you use the phrase insofar as the sources tell us. Um, I mean, the best book, I would say, is by Hugh Kennedy. Um, he makes it quite clear that it's difficult to make authoritative statements about the force structure, the size, the weapons, and the tactics used by the Arab forces, but it's certainly clear that they benefited both from the extent to which the bitter uh, conflict between the byzantine byzantine forces and the Sasanians um, um you know in the sixteen six twenties, 620s um which had been really very serious they'd exhausted both of them and also from the actual skill of the arabs in terms of archery mobility and morale um now where you put the balance between those two factors is interesting and of course on top of that um Byzantium had been weakened by the plague. I mean, what's interesting is not so much that Byzantium did badly initially at the at the hand of Arab attack, attackers. After all, um, the Sasanians had conquered uh, Syria in 611 and Egypt in 616. But from that, the Emperor Heraclitius defeats them in the late 620s. So it's, it's not so much that the Arabs... Um, achieved success that I think is important, it's that they were able to sustain success and to entrench their, um, many um, of their conquests. That, I think, is, is, is a more interesting factor.
1: In medieval Europe, what were the differences between private and public military systems?
2: Well, again, we've got a long period of time when we're talking about medieval Europe, let us say roughly 400 to let us say roughly uh, 1500. And I suppose the uh, usual notion that people would be um, trying to uh, underline there is by which they mean the state, by which they mean a sovereign body, um, had um, a uh, a right... Um, to warfare that was more circumscribed in the case of private bodies, by which we generally mean uh, individual landlords, though uh, we could also mean, for example, uh, independent or autonomous towns or other communities. Now, the latter um, are clearly significant, and there are often linkages between public and private uh military structures. The one that's usually discussed is feudalism, which itself is capable of a number of definitions and which also had a dynamic, a changing characteristic. Um, so what I think one's got here is a range of military activity and organization. Now, before that sounds anachronistic and we pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, well, you know, people in the past, weren't they pathetic? I think it's reasonable to point out that around the world today, we have many what you might call private uh, military systems, or certainly non-state military systems, some of them of considerable scale. One can think, for example, of Colombian or Mexican cartels, one can think of Afghan warlords, etc., etc., and we have the concept of the failed states today, but even in those states which are not failed, let us say the United States, there are many people who are authorized Um, to bear arms for purposes of security, uh, and that operate as security forces. And the same is true in uh, other societies. So I'm not sure that we should necessarily assume that uh, private warfare or private military capability is a matter of the past. And I would also point out, as you know, my book on Uh, history of fortification. I make the point that uh, modern societies are more fortified than would have been the case 150 years ago with uh, public buildings generally uh, protected in some way or other uh, with issues such as um, strengthened glass, burglar alarms, gated communities, etc. etc. And where I'm going with, with, with this argument is something I've tried to also bring out in my recent book on logistics, which is the flaw in so much of the literature on war, which is the assumption of a developmental characteristic towards a situation known as modernity, which in some way is held to be so obviously better and which makes other forms obsolescent. And I think that's a very crude notion. I think it's a crude notion that reflects... Um, particular uh, intellectual fashions uh, in the in particular 20th century though there were whiggish arguments prior to that period which were similar so the Whig endowment of the canon with a transformative characteristic and I think one has to be very careful in these assumptions Uh, I don't mean to say that change does not occur but I just mean to say that one shouldn't assume there is a clear developmental progressive and teleological pattern underlying it.
1: Why did the Crusades ultimately fail, military speaking?
2: Well, I've got a chapter on the Crusades in there, and I've suggested that, um, first of all, it fits into a long-term pattern in which uh, local people were fought over by incomers or their descendants, so the Crusaders, the Mamelukes, uh, briefly, the Mongols were there. Of those incomers, the most effective were Turkic um, nomadic uh, peoples in many respects. Uh, them and the, They and the Mamelukes um, uh, were the ones who uh, really struggled. And you could argue that the Turkic peoples won in the 15-teens when Selim I, Selim the Grim, the Ottoman sultan, uh, definitively defeats the Mamelukes, and thereafter, Jerusalem is under Ottoman rule until World War I, when the uh, British uh, conquer it. Um, so I would say a lot of it is the strength of non the, non, the non-Christians, the the non-Crusaders, as being the absolute key element. And I would also point out that it's only a relatively, um, although significant, but it's still only a relatively marginal Uh, uh, characteristic or activity for many of the Christian societies so that they offer only a modest and episodic uh, military commitment. And you can see the same pattern if you're looking at successive attempts by Western powers to establish themselves in North Africa. Um, which have a very long genesis and it, which, again, the problem is that they ultimately rest on the degree of support that they are going to have from their host societies within Europe. So most classically, the French and um, and Algeria would be a classic example there. But earlier, you know, the Portuguese attempt in Morocco, Spanish attempts and so on.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: well I think the best book on the Mongols to my mind and their military side is Tim May's book and I think Timothy May's book at Not Georgia. I think um he very much provides a discussion of the tsunami method of conquest involving invading and devastating a large region then withdrawing holding only a small section of the territory but thus having created a buffer zone which made it impossible to attack the mongols and then served as the basis for a further expansion i mean i would add to that um, a whole host of issues to do with the deficiencies in military terms of opponents Um, i would also add the The Mongol ability to operate in a number of environments, and the essential importance of stepland activity um, in that military culture.
1: Why do you appear to challenge the concept of the so-called gunpowder gunpowder revolution?
2: Well, I've written a lot of books on this, and I mean, in that one, I'm really summarising my book on war. 1450 to 1600, and also the separate book on 17th century warfare called Beyond the Military Revolution. I think I've gone into those at some length. I mean, uh, um, as you will know, there are. Uh, this has been one of the most active uh, fields of scholarly activity. Um, in uh, recent years. I'm talking about two things essentially here. One, the need to be wary about reading back from uh, late 19th and 20th century firearms to the firearms and the firearms capabilities um, of the uh, earlier periods particularly 15th and 16th century and secondly The argument that in some way the world question had been decisively determined by, in favor of Western powers, uh, by their use of gunpowder. And, you know, I've written about that at some length. And in essence, in this book, I think it's fair to say I've summarized arguments I've made elsewhere. And I would hope readers would look at those because those arguments are important, but they're also discussed at greater length elsewhere.
1: How did what you term naval reach transform the nature of war in the period after 1400?
2: Well, I think naval reach, I mean, what I'm talking about that is the capacity to project power by sea. So the key thing is not necessarily how far you can sail. Um, obviously, the first European circumnavigation of the world is the and the Mage- Magellan expedition, though, of course, Magellan uh, is killed en route, but th- that expedition. But it's more to do with your ability to project power, to um, have a significant number of troops and material uh, attack targets in particular areas, with you having benefited, A, from transporting the troops there, and B, from having a local control, whatever control means, and obviously it there is, over the waters involved. Now, I would argue that you um, see that more frequently from the 15th century. I mean, obviously, you'd seen elements of power projection by sea earlier, not least, um, although the scales value, varied from Polynesians, from Vikings, and indeed from some of the imperial systems. I think the Romans are an example of that. Um, but what I would argue is that trans-oceanic activity increases in scale. First, obviously, with the Chinese in the 15th century, but they don't sustain that after the 1430s. And then with the Europeans, initially the European scale is quite modest, Um, but it increases and is then linked to um, what one might term strategies of economic and territorial advantage, most obviously with the Portuguese and the Spaniards.
1: Why did the major non-European powers not engage in trans-Oceanic sea power projection?
2: Ah, Well, I think that's essentially a matter of um, on the one hand, culture. So, for example, the culture of Mughal India um, is not that of a maritime power, and I would argue the same as that of, of the uh, Manchu in uh, in China. I don't mean by that that the Manchu don't have uh, warships, as indeed they do. Uh, for example, when Um, conquering Taiwan in 1683. But what I mean is that that is not their prime interest. So, If you take the case of the Manchu, both the Kangxi Emperor and the Quinlong Emperor who are the two most significant expansionist emperors are most concerned with activity and expansionism on the steppe uh, particularly and uh, antagonism with the Tsungas of what is now we would call xinqian and for them conquering xinqian uh, conquering tibet are the prime matters of importance so i mean i would think here that what you have got is uh, cultures strategic cultures and the elites that are linked to those which are primarily land based army based if you like and these societies are not particularly interested in uh, long-range maritime activity. You might actually argue that the same is true of many European societies. Um, I, I've got a book coming out on the strategy of the French Revolution and Napoleon, in which I draw attention to the only episodic interest of Napoleon in transoceanic uh, power projection.
1: What explains the military success of the Ottoman Empire in the 15th and 16th centuries?
2: Um, I think the uh, ability to operate in, after all, what we're talking about is three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, um, and on both land and sea, reflects adaptability, which is a key element, as with the Mongols after they took over China. And indeed, in order to help them take over China, You've got uh, people, step societies adapting to very different methods of warfare. I think that adaptability is very significant. I think the syncretic practice of their rulership is significant. The Ottomans um, are happy to prevail over and dominate non-Islamic societies rather than feel that they have to convert everybody that they rule and that helps to create constituencies of interest and support for them their ability to play off their opponents and the difficulty the opponents have in cooperating I think that is a very um, significant step so in terms of uh, playing off their opponents there are attempts by um, the Europeans, for example, to cooperate with opponents of the Ottomans to the east, both the Safavids and pre-Safavids. In fact, um, these prove extraordinarily difficult to make any luck of or from. So also, for example, the attempt Mamluks and Safavids uh, to cooperate. And I think that's very significant. The Ottomans have a central position, and that gives them an enormous strategic resilience and a, a, an opportunity.
1: Why did Japan's invasion of Korea in the late 16th century fail?
2: Um, I think Japan's invasion of Korea fails for two reasons. One, the strength of Korean resistance. But two, um, the um, importance of Chinese intervention in Korea. And I think the combination of the two is very significant. On top of that, the new Ch- Japanese government is only recently established. In the Hideyoshi one, is only recently established. It's essentially reliant on a quick uh, victory, quick campaign, it's not really designed for a long and intractable war in what is a very difficult logistical environment.
1: How do you explain British military dominance after 1692?
2: Uh, well, I think we're talking here about at sea, and I think I mean, it needs to be fought for. Um, the the British um, uh, are the dominant power after, at sea after uh, after La Hogue in 1692, but they have significant battles they have to fight um, uh, in 1704, 1744, 1747, 1759. Um, 1778 and 1781 and 82 and that's even before we've got to the french revolutionary wars and some of those battles they succeed and others they don't i mean we wouldn't be talking about the obvious dominance of the british as a result of naval power if we were thinking about the aftermath of the battle of the virginia capes in 81 and the british failure to relieve the force uh, besieged at Yorktown or indeed the failure at, um, of the battle at uh, Toulon in 44 and off Ushant in um, uh, 78, uh, to achieve um, uh, the defeat of the opposing force. So what I would say is Britain had the largest navy in the world. It had a good uh, fighting practice at tactical, operational and strategic level. Um, It put more of its efforts into the Navy than its rivals. But at the same time, it was difficult to work up a Navy uh, to win in each war. That took time uh, to work up individual ships, to work up the fleet as a whole. And on top of that, you needed to actually be able to secure uh, your victories and to then be able to use them. And again, that's not easy I've recently brought out a book on the army from 1688 to 1815, in which I draw attention to the fact that some amphibious operations have great success, but other operations, even when Britain is dominant in, at sea, don't produce the success that was anticipated or hoped for, The uh, let's say the 1757 hope to take Lewisburg. Um, not successful. I mean, it falls the following year, but, you know, each year a war goes on is a year that uh, you may not be going to win, that you might have to end it.
1: Why were the Manchus so successful in steppe warfare after the conquest of China in 1644?
2: Oh, I think the Manchu are very good at that. I think they've got a a, uh, military style and culture which draws on their already... Um, significant um, ability at warfare um, as it were in the non-Chinese context um, Which, in the, and then on top of that having taken over China, their use of the resources of China including its military resources, its Green Standard divisions and I think this is very effective but also it owes a lot to commanders, both the Kangxi Emperor and the commanders appointed by the Qinglong Emperor are very significant very important
1: on the Great War, you state that German operational failure helps to explain Germany's eventual defeat. Why is that so?
2: Um, I think that the German operational failure is, I think, fairly well established. I'm not saying that necessarily the opponents did terribly well, but, I mean, if you're thinking of Anika Mombire's book on um the weakness of the Germans and in the invasion in 1914, if you're thinking of the failure of the Verdun plan in 1916, if you're thinking in 1918 of the failure in the spring offensives to sustain an axis of assault on any one, um, one, any one area, I think those are all very important.
1: Why do you refer to the Second World War as being, quote, atypical, unquote?
2: well it 's atypical in terms of the nature of the war compared to most warfare in the um, in the twentieth century um, it 's atypical in its uh, integration of a large number of separate conflicts it 's atypical on the um, the scale of its aerial warfare the scale of its naval warfare um, and indeed, I would say that um, the mobilisation of the resources of society, although you can see higher rates of mobilisation in some societies some pre industrial societies, um, in terms of the resource produced is really quite uh, quite extraordinary. Um, so I would say it is atypical, and one of the problems is it becomes, it, as it were, the definition point for a lot of writing about war, and I've tried to argue in the short history of war that that's misplaced the Second World War obviously needs writing about. As you know, I've published, I think, four books on the Second World War, but I don't think it's the only thing one should be writing about if one's writing about the 20th century, or more particularly, I don't think it should be the paradigm of warfare.
1: Why is culture a key concept for military history?
2: Culture is a key concept for military history because it relates to the way in which militaries think of and use uh, force and uh, killing, uh, their attitudes towards inflicting punishment and also suffering punishment, and the way in which they shape the notion of their own uh, interests, so culture is important of all those reasons, and I would say also there are other uh, factors that affect the interaction with civilians, etc., etc., but I think the ones I've just cited, I would argue, are the most important.
1: What do you think of Jason Lowell's argument that military effectiveness, especially on a small unit level, is based primarily on inequality or lack thereof? Sorry, is the military what is based primarily on? Military effectiveness is based primarily on inequality or lack thereof.
2: Well, I think that one can't have... I'm always wary of the individual interpretation like that. I mean, what I would argue is that, you know, the effectiveness of a, um, let's say, a squadron of aircraft is not explained by the factor that one's just talking about. And again, I would say that... um, if we were thinking about at the present moment um, how to assess the effectiveness of the conflict in the Horn of Africa between Ethiopia and the Tigray rebels, uh, or the fact, or the warfare in Burma that's going on at the moment, Myanmar, or the warfare in Syria, or what might be a putative confrontation involving Russia, China, and the great power, other great power, particularly the United States.
1: Um,
2: I'm not sure that 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 remark that he made is terribly helpful. Uh,
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
2: Oh, I think that the key element to take away from this is that military activity war is a global practice. And as a global practice, it has an inherent variety. And that too much of the work on war seeks to provide one unitary interpretation and that that is a deeply flawed approach. My approach tries to put the global back into war. I did it in War in the World. I've done it in my particular books on, for example, the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century. And I'm trying to do it here for the whole of history.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much. Professor Jeremy Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.
2: Thank you very much. And for those listeners interested in military history, my next book in that field is going to be called The Geographies of War, and that is due out next year, and it deals with the geographical dimensions of conflict.
1: Thank you, Professor.